Now, if you'd open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 58. We're concluding today our summer in the Psalms. Boy, I love the summer. I'm always sad when summer comes to an end and when school starts, but I'm really happy I don't have to go to school. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. But the summer is coming to an end and the summer in the Psalms is coming to an end and we're going to end on maybe a little bit of an unusual note. So if you'd follow along while I read Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or of the cunning enchanters. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Do you have a favorite psalm? (laughs) If so, I doubt it's this one. It's a rather obscure psalm. Parts of it are hard to translate. It's even hard to categorize this one. It's usually grouped in the Psalms of lament or the Psalms of complaint, and therefore it belongs in that category that we've called disorientation, where things are not as they should be, not as we would like them to be. I wanted to give you a sampling of the Psalms, and this, as I'm sure you've noticed, have parts in it that are shocking in its vehemence. Break their teeth. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. These lines indicate a genre we call imprecatory. Now, an imprecation is a curse. So, the imprecatory psalms are psalms that call upon God to curse one's enemies, often using shocking language. If you've read through the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never seen language like this, then you've never really read your Bible. Many Christians are embarrassed and troubled by these parts of the Bible, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But before talking about that aspect, we need to see what the psalm actually says. We need to understand and try to understand why it has a place in God's revelation. So, Briefly, I'm going to cover what the psalm says 
and then we'll tackle some of the issues that it raises. The structure of this psalm itself is not complicated. In general, this psalm is a plea to God for justice and deliverance. But it begins not by speaking to God, but by speaking to God's, small g, plural. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist accuses these gods sarcastically. And then in verses 3 through 5, they are described and then after that there follows an appeal to God in verses 6 through 9 and finally the last verses 10 and 11 give a conclusion. So we have an accusation followed by a description followed by a prayer of appeal and finally the conclusion of the matter. Number one the accusation Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your heart you devise wrong. With your hands you deal out violence on earth. Now, a lot depends on the translation of the meaning of that little word gods. The Hebrew word could mean gods as in pagan gods, could also refer to angels, to mighty ones, to human rulers, human leaders, human judges. The Bible implies in places that there are evil spirits who lurk behind evil rulers on earth, and that's probably the case here. By the context, the indication is that these gods are men. They are human beings in position of power and authority because they issue judgments, they make decrees, decrees that are not righteous but evil. We're told that they devise wrong in their hearts and deal out violence with their hands so they hurt people. In other words, these are bad guys. These are wicked rulers. They have hard hearts and their hands, their actions are violent. They're committed to evil. Both on the inside and on the outside, they're bad guys. And they do damage. And after addressing them, the psalmist then describes them. And in his description, he refers to them as the wicked, the rishayim. He says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it doesn't hear the voice of the charmer or of the cunning enchanter. These guys go wrong from the get-go. Commentator Derek Kidner says it like this. He says, they have followed the principle of selfishness so thoroughly and consistently to the bitter end that they are a complete menace. They're like poisonous snakes. That means they're deadly. They're also deaf. They can't be reasoned with. But they have authority to issue decrees and they have power to carry those decrees out so they can do large-scale, industrial-scale damage 
Think of some of the worst rulers and leaders that have ever lived, and you get the idea. They do damage, they deal violence, they're bad guys. So in the next verse, we have a prayer, an appeal to God that actually gives even a little bit more info when the psalmist says, oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child that never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. They're like poisonous snakes. They are like lions. Lions and snakes do damage with their teeth, their fangs. For the snake, the fangs pierce and transmit poison. For the lion, he has fangs, but they're not for chewing. They're for tearing and ripping apart. These people are violent and deadly. So maybe it helps a little bit when you think that break their teeth means break their fangs. In other words, stop their ability to do harm. And then there's more imagery that basically says, God, please disappear these people. May their attempts to shoot arrows fail. May they dissolve into slime like the slug. May they dry up and blow away. And may it happen soon. In other words, God, make it stop. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I'll bet you have. So what's the conclusion of the matter? Well, the conclusion assumes that God will indeed answer this appeal. And so that the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Note that word. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. The result of God answering this plea for judgment will be joy for the righteous, but not for the wicked. Now, they will bleed. What they did to others, in other words, will happen to them. And the rest of mankind that looks on will take note and make the correct evaluation. Righteousness leads to reward. Wickedness ends in judgment. Justice is vindicated. Righteousness prevails. Amen. Sounds simple enough. And in many senses it is. But the psalm does raise a number of questions. And it leaves us a little bit uneasy, doesn't it? There are a number of questions about justice, about vengeance, revenge. Justice sounds good, but are we supposed to rejoice in vengeance? And again, what about some of the language used? 
breaking teeth, bathing in blood, really? Like I said, many people find this embarrassing and it's troubling. Does this accurately represent God? And practically speaking, is this a psalm that we can sing on Sundays? Is this even an appropriate prayer for us to pray? Well, yes and no. Sounds equivocal, doesn't it? (laughs) This is going to take a little more thinking. And so in order to get into it, I'd like to suggest two general categories, matters of substance and matters of tone. Matters of substance, first of all. One matter of substance that comes to light here, even though the word isn't used, is justice. Justice. This is a psalm about justice and righteousness. And those two words, justice and righteousness, are nearly synonymous. They're very, very, they're closer than close cousins. They're they're brothers. Justice and righteousness. And if you're a kid that's here today, we're talking about what's fair, okay? We're talking about fairness. Justice is good. I'm sure you will agree. God is just, God is righteous. As a matter of fact, both in Greek and in Hebrew, the same word, depending on context, could be translated just or righteous. That's true in Hebrew and also in Greek. The very same word could be translated either way because they're so closely related. But here's the shade of difference. Righteousness has to do with the moral fabric of the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, right? Where there's righteousness, there's rejoicing, there's peace. Everything's in order. It's good and right. Righteousness is the moral order that is rooted in the perfect righteous character of God who is himself right and just. God establishes that right or righteous moral order. But when that order is broken for some reason, by some crime or some sin, then justice is what comes in to restore that moral order. Do you see the difference? Righteousness is, when righteousness is broken, then we need justice to restore that righteous order. Now, we all like justice. It's actually hardwired into us because we are created in the image and likeness of God and like God, we love justice. We don't have to be taught what is just. We just know it. So when my sister gets more ice cream in her bowl than I do, I do not cry out, Mommy, the principles of righteousness and justice have been transgressed. (laughs) No. But I do say, it's not fair. She got more than I did. We like justice. We want justice. We want justice for everybody, with one exception, me. What happens when I get more ice cream in my bowl than my sister? What do I do? I keep my mouth shut, hoping no one notices. You remember I told you uh, not too long ago about the time I was on the Pennsylvania Turnpike 
and some guy just flies past me going 90, creating a dangerous situation. And in righteous indignation and all humility, I prayed, oh God, send a state trooper. <laughs> and then about a half hour later, after my speed drifted upwards above the limit, oh, God answered my prayer. <laughs> oh God, have mercy. <laughs> now you might say to me, well, brother, what happened to your passion for justice? <laughs> Except if you said that, you'd be a hypocrite because you would do the exact same thing I did. What's the problem here? The problem that we all have in mind, it's actually indicated in the very beginning of the psalm where it says, the wicked go astray from birth. That's true of all of us. Remember Psalm 51 Kevin preached from? In sin did my mother conceive me? I, we go astray from birth. We're all sinners in need of mercy. We're all somewhere along the spectrum of wickedness or unrighteousness. The Psalms dressing it in the extreme, but we need to see ourselves in this Psalm. So first of all, justice is good, and we all have this sense of justice hardwired into us, but we need a little help in perceiving it. Uh, remember Jesus said, uh, before you go trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye, you might want to take a, a look at the log that's in your own eye. Oh, well, that's an exaggeration. I don't have a log in my eye. No, he, he did that for a purpose. We have a log in our eye that we can't see. And Jesus addresses us as hypocrites. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We need help in this. We're all prone to this kind of hypocrisy when it comes to justice. Justice for thee, but not for me. Another matter of substance, vengeance. Did you see that word at the end? Is this a psalm about justice? And it's also about vengeance. Vengeance is an aspect of justice. Vengeance is the punishment that is inflicted when there is a breach of justice. Vengeance is punishment. Vengeance is retribution in response to an injury or a wrong. It's the just response to a wrong inflicted. If you do the crime, you do the time. In order to right the wrong, there must be punishment, and punishment should fit the crime. That's why the lex talionis in the Old Testament says, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. That's not merciful, but it certainly is just. Vengeance is dangerous, but we understand vengeance, and it's actually very, very popular among us. We say, don't get mad, get even. Vengeance is the theme of countless movies, countless plays, novels, getting even. When the bad guy gets what's coming to him. On a humorous level, I was thinking of Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. If you, you know, if maybe if you don't know what that is, Roadrunner is this little bird that goes running around and Coyote wants to eat it. So he devises all these wicked schemes to trap the roadrunner, 
but he falls into his own schemes himself. Shakespeare put it like this. He said he was hoist with his own petard. Petard was a little bomb. The guy sets the bomb and guess what? He gets blown up, hoist by his own little bomb. The Bible talks about the one who digs a pit falling into it. So when the person that devises some kind of trap ends up himself falling into it, ha, justice is served. Poetic justice, vengeance. Oh, we like that. We like it when the bad guy gets his just desserts. We feel mm, maybe not happy, but what? Satisfied. I'm not sure what I feel. When I was going over this, I went out and talked to my wife a little bit in the kitchen. I said, honey, what is it that you feel when somebody gets their just desserts? Does that make you happy? She says, I don't know, not exactly. What's the word? Satisfaction? Content? It's, and you know, the reason, if you really sit down and think about it, you then start thinking about yourself. And that's why I say vengeance is dangerous. It's hazardous to our souls because we may be tempted to take revenge when someone sins against us. And yet we know, even if we're not Christians, but especially for Christians, we know that something's not quite right with that. As a matter of fact, something is very wrong with revenge. That's why God says, vengeance is mine. The Lord will vindicate his people. And Paul picks up on that word in Deuteronomy when he says in Romans 12, Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, that's what God tells us to do. Does that mean that people who do wrong should never be punished? Is there to be no vengeance at all, no vindication, no justice? Yes, there must be, but not from you and not from me. It must come from God. He says, vengeance is mine. But how does he do that? Well, we just read Romans 12. You may recall that Romans 13 has to do with the civil ruler, the governing authority. And in Romans 13, 4, Paul says that that government authority is the servant of God. He is an avenger who carries out what? God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So one of the ways that God executes vengeance is by using civil government. Civil government is a gift that comes from God in his common grace for the purpose of restraining evil on the earth. Civil government is God's idea, and the person who is the civil governor, whether it's the policeman or whoever, is actually God's diaconus, his minister, his servant. He's there as a servant of God to do God's work of justice. That's their job. The church's job, as Paul says here, is to extend mercy for the person that does wrong, your enemy, if he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
If there's an ulterior motive, it'll be like putting coals of fire on his head. Perhaps Paul himself experienced that. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the way it works out in this present age is that justice or vengeance to achieve justice is served out by the government. But they don't do a perfect job of it, do they? There's never going to be perfect justice in this world. And as a matter of fact, sometimes that governing authority is himself corrupt. And that's what this psalm is addressing. So you can see things get a little complicated here. And we can't go into all the different scenarios that this raises for us, but it does raise some pretty tricky questions. But do not fear, perfect justice is coming because at the time of the end, there will be a final judgment. It will be a perfect judgment. It will be exacted by God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to whom God the Father will commit all judgment. It will be a perfect judgment. It will be the judgment of the end time, the final judgment. It will be perfect and it will be dreadful. And that's why it is essential for us to get this business of justice between ourselves and God straightened out here on earth, which we can do through believing the gospel. All right, those are a couple of matters of substance, justice and vengeance. What about matters of tone? A tone is a word that describes an author's attitude. And the attitude of the author of this psalm is what makes us a bit uneasy and makes us wonder, can we really step into that? What is the tone of the writer? Well, he is highly offended by the conduct of these rulers, and he expresses his offense in language that is harsh and vindictive. And there is very little, if any, restraint in his words. And this is what's troubling for us. We say, is this attitude appropriate? You can imagine somebody saying, oh, is this, is this your God of love, my Christian friend? It's led a lot of people to try to explain this kind of language in the Bible to explain it away. Oh, oh, well, you see, that's the Old Testament. And that's the God of wrath. The New Testament, it's a God of love. Well, if you think that, you really haven't read the New Testament either, especially the book of Revelation where he will dash in pieces with a rod of iron. And Jesus said a whole lot about weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and everlasting fire. No, the God of wrath in the Old Testament is the God of wrath in the New Testament and the God of wrath is merciful in the Old Testament and merciful in the New Testament. All of these are attributes essential to his character. So that won't work. Well, what about, hey, this is poetry. Poetry is expressive. People get carried away with poetic language. They exaggerate hyperbole. Well, it's true. It is poetry, but it is expressing something real. Well, you know, this may be in the Bible, but this part isn't inspired. It's just human emotion. Well, 
It certainly is human emotion. That's what the Psalms do. They express the wide range of human emotion. So this is in the Old Testament, and it is poetry, and it is human emotion, and it is divinely inspired. It's here for a reason. It's here to help us. The Psalms do express that wide range of human emotion and language in the imprecatory Psalms honestly expresses appropriate outrage and anger that accompanies being sinned against. But it is expressed toward God. That's what the Psalms are. The psalmist is talking to God. Now we're listening in, it's true. But he is addressing God in this psalm. He does not act himself. He does call upon God to act. If you have never been the victim of crime or serious injustice, this will be hard for you to understand. But if you have ever been a victim of assault or robbery or slander, perhaps online character assassination, it's hard not to feel anger and fear and helplessness, and it's just a bubbling mixture of horrible emotions that gives rise to this desire for vengeance. It's not pretty. And the psalm captures some of that real-life emotion. And there are people here today who know exactly what I'm talking about, and I hope most of you don't. This is nothing compared to people who have really suffered. But I recall a time in my life when, uh, as a young married couple, how I felt when our apartment was robbed and ransacked. Uh, Clara and I had been out one evening at different places. She came home first, went into the apartment, realized what had happened, and very wisely immediately went out of it and went to a neighbor's house. I came home just after that, and I remember seeing everything torn up, the smell of cigarette smoke, the cigarette butts crushed into the carpet, the whole place in disarray. Just glad in retrospect we weren't there when it happened. We were scared. My mother had given my wife a number of gold bracelets. They were stolen, among other things, and we felt violated. Couldn't really sleep that night. I remember finally I fell into a fitful sleep and had a dream, and in my dream I, I confronted the, the robbers with a screwdriver. It was the only weapon I had, and then they pulled out a gun, and I just, I just felt helpless. I gave up, and I woke up. Now, what do you do with all those emotions? Will you bring it all to God? And giving real and honest expression to what we feel is a right and appropriate thing, but it has to be brought to God. And that's what the psalmist does here. His desire for justice and vengeance is not wrong, but there is more to say because this psalm points forward to something more. This psalm, a psalm of David, perhaps written by him, perhaps just ascribed to him,
But David himself points to more. So we ask the question, all right, we're Christians. We're here in the New Testament era. We're beyond the cross. Does Jesus Christ change anything for us? Does it change anything here? Oh, yes, it does. And I'll tell you why. First of all, because Jesus himself is the ultimate victim of injustice. So he knows how it feels. He is able to sympathize with us. He has experienced it all personally to the max, to a degree far beyond any who ever lived because no matter how bad you've had it, Jesus had it worse because his suffering was not just physical, excruciating pain, but it was emotional and it was spiritual. He bore our sins. He carried our sorrows and our griefs to the extent that he was separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was despised. He was rejected. So, my friend, Jesus knows. But even more than that, Jesus cares. And praise God, Jesus heals. He's the only one who can heal these deep wounds. And he begins by forgiving our sins, yes, because even victims need to be forgiven. We're not just broken, we are sinful. Jesus knows how to do this. This is the message of the gospel. This is why Christ died. But even more than his atoning death, Jesus gives us an example. Because when he hung on that cross, do you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them. That was an appeal to God for mercy. That takes things beyond justice. Mercy is another matter of substance. Justice is good. Justice is right. Vengeance is appropriate. But mercy, mercy is wonderful. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Grace is giving you what you do not deserve. Mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. That's why I called out to God for mercy when I was about to get a ticket. That's why we love God's mercy. Mercy like grace is amazing. Mercy is undeserved. Mercy cannot be demanded and it cannot be earned. It can only be given. And the way that we receive mercy is through repentance and faith. When we turn to God, we find that He 
is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why Jesus bore our sins himself so that then he could extend mercy to those who appeal to him. Yeah, mercy was demonstrated by Jesus. Mercy is made possible only because of Jesus. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ atoned for our sins so that mercy could be granted. That's why Jesus became incarnate. That's why God became man so that he could suffer in our place and for our sins so we might be forgiven. And my friends, if you are saved today, this is the reason why. He prayed for those crucifying him, not, I'm going to get evens, but Father, forgive them. And so when Stephen was being stoned, he followed Jesus' example. Father, lay not this sin to their charge. And standing by that day was a young man named Saul who heard that prayer. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was an enemy. He heard Stephen's prayer. And soon Saul was converted and became Paul. I wonder if Stephen's prayer was like hot coals coming down on Saul's head. You see, God is in the business of turning enemies into friends. That's what he's done with you and with me. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, and we were, we were reconciled to God, how? By the death of his son? Well, now, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We are reconciled enemies who have become friends of God. My friends, that is amazing grace. In Psalm 58, the wicked are described as those who go astray from birth, and doesn't that describe us all? Maybe I need to see myself as a sinner in need of mercy first of all, and then perhaps I can extend God's grace to others. Justice doesn't therefore go away Justice points up the need for mercy. And Jesus had mercy on me. Maybe I can forgive others the same way. After we were robbed, I was struggling. I was filled with anxiety. I mean, our home had been cased. We'd been watched. They knew when we left. We felt yucky. It was horrible. And again, this is nothing in comparison to what some of you have experienced. What do you do? Well, I remember Jesus' words. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Boy, that's counterintuitive. 
Well, loving and doing good to the rombers was not really possible. I had no way of knowing who they were. But I could pray for them. And so I did. I admit, in the beginning, my prayers were motivated more by my desire for peace in my own soul. But over time, and this took several weeks of praying every day for God to bless those who robbed us, after a while, I really meant it. Maybe God answered that prayer. Maybe, maybe they're here today. If so, come up after the meeting. We can have a group hug. Well, God's peace came to me, and I was strengthened. And I saw how God can even use bad things to bring about good. There is a reward for righteousness. There is a God who judges on earth. He judged my sin in Christ. He'll do the same for you. As for the vehemence in this psalm, I don't know if we'll ever get comfortable with this sort of thing. I'm not sure we're supposed to be comfortable with it. But what it does do is it makes us stop in our tracks and think, why is this in here? Sin is a very terrible thing. When people are victimized, it is a very terrible thing. For some reason, God allows these things to happen. But just as he allowed the death of his son, which then brought about the great mercy of the gospel, so God is in the business of reclaiming evil for good. He did that with you. He did that with me. And while we believe this, we can be agents extending this mercy of God to others. Jesus knows, Jesus cares, Jesus heals. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Psalms. Thank you for even the imprecatory Psalms. Lord, they make us stop in our tracks and take notice and force us to wrestle with things that we'd rather not be bothered with. But you will not allow us to be at ease in Zion. You stir up our nests all the time to cause us to seek you afresh. Lord, I pray that as we consider the existence of evil and the great lengths that you went to, to overcome it, and your gracious and merciful, your amazingly gracious and merciful heart towards sinners. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to follow your example that we might bless those who curse us and pray for those who despitefully use and abuse us, that we might be called the sons of our heavenly Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.